Go on, I got this. We'll get it. Okay, okay. We're speaking with uh, author Doug Broad. The book is They Just Seem a Little Weird. It is the story of how Cheap Trick, Kiss, Aerosmith, and Stars remade rock and roll. And as we say here in Montreal, bonjour, Doug. How are you? Bonjour. I'm fine. Yes. Uh, well, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fabulous as well today. But, but let, me, let me talk to you about this book because I didn't realize when I, when I was going through it that it was going to be so incredibly detailed. I mean, you got the nooks and crannies on these, on these bands. Um, was that the original concept to really sort of get in there and get super detailed? And if so, why not do four books, one on Aerosmith, one on Kiss, one on Stars, and one on Cheap Trick? That's a great question. Well, the idea, believe it or not, the idea for the book came to me. Um, I mean, I love all four bands. They're four of my favorite bands. But I was looking at the Gene Simmons solo album from 1978 when Kiss did the four solo albums. And members of the three other bands all play on Gene's record. And I saw that and I wanted to investigate, like, what are the ties between these four bands? I mean, they all, most of them played together on tour. Um, they shared, some of them shared management. Some of them shared producers. They collaborated with each other. Some of them were very friendly with each other. And I, I saw it as like looking into 70s hard rock, but through the eyes of this like group of bands. And that was kind of the, the way I approached it. And the level of detail was just uh, a function of, my doing, I guess, a lot of research. I interviewed 136 people on the record for the book, not all band members either. I did a lot of people outside of the bands, the roadies, the PR people, fans, um, bookers. Yeah, you had Carol Kay in there. I was like, oh, Carol's got a got a spot. Nice. Yeah. So and then I, I also interviewed a lot of, you know, the 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 other players that, you know, Cheap Tricks, two, two of Cheap Tricks touring keyboardists, um, collaborators on some of these records. So, you know, I wanted to sort of look at it, look at these four bands and you know, really get to what the relationship, relationships were. When you're looking at this, because I, I look at the title and I, and I see Cheap Trick and I see Kiss and I see Aerosmith and I go, yeah, those those define sort of American hard rock. Why the inclusion of stars now? And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, but I'm a Canadian. And from the Canadian perspective, you say stars, I go, yeah, well, they're in the sky. Uh, and, and I don't mean to be rude about that, but but what was their importance in all of this? And, and how did you determine to put them in rather than a journey or a foreigner or, or sticks? Okay, well, that's a good, great question. I mean, for me, it was the beauty of going back to the Gene Simmons record, all four of these bands are represented on that album. And that's kind of where I wanted to jump jump off the story. Um, with regard to stars, I mean, obviously they had many deep ties to Kiss. They were both managed by Bill O'Coin. Um, you know, they collaborated back in the day. Um, stars um, opened for Kiss, actually only one show in Toledo, Ohio in 76. But, you know, and, and then uh, it's funny and funnily enough, uh, Richie Rano, the guitarist from Stars, um, ended up uh, running the New York, New Jersey Kiss conventions um, throughout 
you know, the late 80s and 90s and into the 2000s. So there are some really deep, interesting ties there. But to go back to the original question, I mean, you're right. I mean, there could have been other bigger bands to cover, but in the case of Stars, I mean, I love the band. I think they're a great band and they're very underappreciated. They're also this band that were always kind of seen as like not quite the A-level, not quite the, the stadium or the Coliseum headliners, but they always played on these bills. And, you know, I wanted to investigate why a band like this with, with high-powered management with four albums on a major label, Capital, with Jack Douglas producing two of their records. Like, why didn't they make it? There are, there are a lot of bands on that level from that era. And I always wanted to sort of discover why these bands never really attained what they could have attained. And I thought that was a good way to sort of work them into the book as kind of an investigation into why these B-level bands stayed at the B-level. Well, you know, it's funny. I just did a, I just did a bit with Alan Niven, my co-host, on on a band uh, and why it stays at that B level. Going through this research, why do you think they they did stay at that level? Because you look at the musicianship from Cheap Trick or Kiss or Aerosmith, you know, it's all about the same. Even the guys in in Stars is about the same. What is the sort of the secret sauce that gets you to the A level? Because we were discussing, me and Alan, this band called Blackstone Cherry. They've been around for 20 years, but they always play theaters. You know, they're, they're not Madison Square Garden. And yet they've got the music, they've got the thing, the band is there, and they just can't get that step. Uh, why do you think a band like Stars or a band in general can't get that extra step? What, what is the secret sauce that Madonna has, that U2 has, that these bands have? From, from what from what I've gleaned from, from all my research is that First of all, you need songs on the radio from that era in the 70s. You needed to have songs on the radio in order to sell records, in order to have bookers put you in the high profile slots. In the case of Stars, they were the perennial opening band. So they never really got out of that sort of niche. And also in the case of Stars, you know, they they were sort of they came through the Bill O'Coin factory, if you will. And, you know, they were never a club band. They always played theaters and arenas as opening bands, and then sometimes headlining themselves as, you know, in theaters. But they always played, you know, to the back of the room, to the back of the stadium or the arena, and they never really came through the trenches, through the dives, through the, you know, the, the, the dirty bars. And they also had this very interesting pedigree. I don't know if you knew about. So two of the guys in Stars came from the band Looking Glass that had a hit song with Brandy or a Fine Girl. One of the guys, uh, Richie Rano, the guitarist, um, he was in the band called Stories, and he joined right after they had a hit with Louie Louie. Um, so they came from like not a hard rock background. So they had this hurdle to you know they they, they didn't want to be seen as these you know fake guys playing hard rock. So they had a very interesting kind of, they had obstacles thrown in front of them at every turn. You know, their songs were great, but sometimes they were a little involved. Um, they, they weren't as basic maybe as Kiss, maybe as, as Cheap Trick songs were. Um, they went on weird tangents sometimes. So th there was there was a lot of that kind of... Um, maybe 
too clever for the room in their case. It could be. Now, what was the quote that I read uh, about Kiss that, 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 that came out of this? It was, they made... Uh, uh, they, they, they made, they, they made they, dumb they, music for smart people, something like that? <laughs> they, they were smart guys making dumb music right. for smart people and dumb people, too. <laughs> uh, that's kind of funny. I, I love that quote. Um, you also get in here, and, and you're going to talk about somebody that I've been friends with for a few years, Alan Schwartzberg. Talk to me about how you decided to track down so so many people. Cause, and I don't mean to be rude, but and I, I guess that, that's my, my thing today, but... Uh, you know, there are a lot of these guys that are bit players and, and really behind the scenes guys. And, and I, I've got to tell you my Schwartzberg story. Uh, he one time told me that he ghosted on a cheap trick record. It, it got me a call from Bunny Carlos, who was exceptionally angry, said that's BS. That's never happened. Blah, blah, blah. And, uh, I, I have since been banned from interviewing cheap trick since that <laughs> infamous call because of Alan. Um, talk to me about tracking down so many of the sort of behind-the-scenes guys, and, and why is it important for them to be part of this story? That's a great question. I mean, for the, in the case of Alan and Neil Jason and Richard T. Bear, a.k.a. Richard Gerstein, they all played on the Gene Solo record, Mitch Weissman, yep. Eric Troyer. F for the opening chapter of the book, the introduction, mm -hmm. I wanted to really go deep into that into the making of that record and you know those guys know where all the bodies are buried and they, you know they were around forever you know sean delaney who who worked with kiss and worked with stars he's a very big part of this book as well he's a big character and those guys all worked with him as well in separate projects so i felt it necessary to to talk to these people who you don't normally hear from in a book like this um, just to get their perspective and to get their history. I mean, these guys are, you know, these guys are all in their 70s, their early 70s, mid 70s. And I just I want to get that stuff down there. I, I don't want to wait. So that was kind of the, my, my, my M.O. going into it. Yeah. And then, of course, Schwartzberg ended up on The Elder. He ended up on uh, Kiss Animalize. So he, he's been around with the with the guys. Uh you, of course, worked at Entertainment Weekly and uh, Spin Magazine. Neither one of those magazines were, were very big in covering the, these bands, um, but they did. I mean, there was the Spin covers in 1996 for, for the Kiss Reunion Tour. Talk to me a little bit about the, the, the editorial aspect of that, where you have these great American bands and you just say, yeah, you know, because Rolling Stone gets a lot of, uh, uh, you know, uh, well, they have an old their own agenda, but... What was it about the bands that here they are, they're big enough to play arenas, they're big enough to be iconic, they're, you, you see Gene Simmons' face, you go, yep, that's Kiss, even if you don't know who Kiss is, and yet the popular magazines are like, meh, we're not going to cover them, we're going to stick to Nirvana, and we're going to stick to, you know, Green Day. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was editor-in-chief of Spin for eight years, and, and the one thing that I tried to do was was, you know, when I could get these bands in there. So for, for instance, I reviewed the Sonic Boom record for Spin, gave it a rave. But Spin was seen as, and it, and it, and it was an alternative rock magazine. And, and, you know, I also, you know, put Cheap Trick in Spin a couple of times. So, uh, you know, it, it, it was a different genre, really. And, and there wasn't a lot of crossover, I think, with the readership. So I had to sort of 
you know, pull the reins on that a bit. Um, one thing I did, you know, I, 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 I did bemoan while I was at, you know, spin was every month we had to, you know, put an artist on the cover and very often we found ourselves, you know, with this dilemma, like who do we put on the cover this, this month, who's going to sell a magazine who actually looks cool. And back in that, you know, back in the, the, the early 2000s, mid 2000s, there weren't a lot of bands that looked like a gang, like a Kiss or an Aerosmith or a Cheap Trick. So it became, okay, who do we put on the cover this month? Is it Death Cab for Cutie, Panic at the Disco, um, you know, Eminem again? In my, um, in my head, I'm going, no, no, definitely well, no. <laughs> I, that, was, that was, you know, that was Spin's thrust and that right, was Spin's leadership and, you know, Radiohead. Um, so... You know, I, and this book was kind of a, was really freeing for me, especially, you know, coming from this alternative rock background. I mean, my, my first love was was Kiss and Cheap Trick in the 70s. And it was sort of nice to go back in time and sort of, you know, put this story together and, and, and interview some of the, the people who made some of my favorite music. Well, and, and you did it very well. Before I get back to the book, and I, and I want to get back to the book, uh, I just want to ask you, you know, as the Internet has taken over and everybody gets everything for free and you click and you get it for free, how much impact did that have on Spin and Entertainment Weekly from being a paper physical thing to moving online? How difficult was the transition? And ultimately, can they survive? Is it a survivable marketplace? That's a very interesting question. I mean, I, I left Spin probably a year before it went digital only, um, or a year and a half before it went digital only. So the answer to that is it's it's tough. And 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 you see Rolling Stone now. Rolling Stone is now um, I believe it's a monthly oversized magazine, ten dollar cover price. Entertainment Weekly is no longer weekly. It's now monthly. Um, it's, it's tough. And, you know, if I, I hope and pray that we have physical magazines, which I love to have in my possession and to hold um, in the future. But I, I, I can't say it's going to happen. I, I can't say they're going to still be there in you know, two years time. It's, it's tough. Although, you know, I look at the newsstand and I see all these magazines in, you know, coming from the UK, you know, classic rock and metal hammer. And they're, they, I don't know if they're thriving. I don't think they're thriving, but they're there and they're still, you know, putting, putting up the good fight. And that, that's, that's reassuring to me. It is. And uh, I mean, I'll, I'll, you know, my, my opinion on that is uh, everything changes, right? Everything moves forward. I mean, that's why we don't have as many, you know, blacksmiths putting on uh, shoe horses, you know, horseshoes, but, you know, stuff moves and it, it, that's just the way life goes. But at the same time, it is it is sort of sad to not have a stack of magazines, you know, behind you where you can just flip back and go, oh, look at this circus magazine from 19. I mean, it is. It's a little it's a little too bad uh in terms of your loving of these bands how did that come about where where were you i mean i i know very well you know my brother left some records out that he had borrowed from a friend and boom next thing you know i'm a kiss fan where where do you come into contact with these bands and go oh yeah that's for me well my, my first record 
that I bought with my own money was um, Elton John's Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy. I was 11 years old, I think, when it came out, and I and I bought it. And then uh, I think it was just around that time, or maybe a little earlier than that, I had seen Gene Simmons on the Mike Douglas TV show in New York uh, when they had this kissing contest to, to promote the first Kiss record. And I was a big horror, sci-fi, comic book guy. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, this this band must be cool. So I saw them before I heard them. And when I heard them, I loved them, too, because it's kind of dumb, simple, stupid rock. And for a 14 year old, 15 year old kid, it was it totally was actually no, I was like 10 or 11 at the time. It was totally up my alley. Um, and then from there, I just, you know, I just I, I loved hard rock. Um, I, I, I fell in love with Cheap Trip when I first heard them. and you know, the, but then my taste changed. And like 1979, 1980, I kind of moved into punk and new wave and kind of got tired with hard rock. And I always kept up with Cheap Trick. Um, I didn't keep up with Kiss for a very long period of time, especially during the non-makeup era, although I did see them once during that era. But then when Sonic Boom came out, and actually before that, when they... When they um, we did the reunion tour in 96 with the makeup. I, I totally was all in again. I kind of was reliving my childhood. Oh, yeah. I saw 11 of those reunion shows. I, I know exactly what you mean. Uh, you mentioned in that answer, you, you talk about you, you saw them before you heard them and that you were impressed with the look. D- do you think at some point uh, look is, because you were in spin and you had to choose for covers. How important is look in selling an artist? You know, I think it's not as important today as it was back then, because back then you had no other. It was very hard to communicate this stuff. I mean, you you, you looked in magazines. You didn't have the Internet. Bands were rarely on television. There were no videos, really. Um, so if you could see Kiss or Cheap Trick on Don Kirsch's rock concert or American Bandstand or... Um, you know, some other, you know, show in the U.S., Midnight Special. I mean, that was great. You'd have to stay up late to watch that. Um, And if you were lucky enough to see them, if they were in your town, that was great, too. But I think now, you know, bands have been demystified. And I think artists want that to happen. And, And artists have gotten closer to their fans that way. But at the same time, as as a fan of the aesthetic of a band, I think uh, it loses something for sure. I mean, to me, it's the whole package. I don't like seeing guys playing on stage in street clothes. I mean, I just that's not fun for me as a as a, a concert goer. So I like something visual. I like the visual element. So that's something that really attracted me to all four of these bands. And that was one of the things that linked them in the book is that they were four bands that really wanted to put on a show and give you your money's worth um, and be theatrical. Yeah, and and I'll, I'll take up on the point of, of demystifying. You know, back in the 70s, because I'm this, you know, we're in the same age group. We, when Kiss came to town, they wouldn't come back for another 18 months, and you didn't know what they did between those 18 months. You had no clue. Same with Cheap Tricks, same with Aerosmith. And then we got to the 2000s, and some people had the internet, and some didn't. And all of a sudden, you knew the set list the, the next night. You knew, and at some point, it started. It stopped being 
um, it's it's the, 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 you lost that mysticism. It's like, oh yeah, I know exactly what they're going to apply. I know exactly when I'm going to take my bathroom break. It, has the internet sort of taken the fun out of rock and roll? It, it has in a way. Um, you know, I was having a, a conversation with a mutual friend of ours, Sean Kelly, and we were talking about how back in the day you you would you would buy a record sight unseen. And even if you didn't like it, you would you would force yourself to like it because you would play it so often because you realize you spent your six dollars on it and you're going to like this. You're going to find something likable about it. And that's kind of how I approached a lot of my music back then. And, and you had to because you didn't have a lot on offer. You didn't have Spotify, you know, streaming every album ever recorded or every song ever ever written so you had to make do with what you had um you had the radio but you couldn't control the radio you had to take what they gave you so you ended up you know spending you know working an hour or two to buy to to earn enough money to buy an album and god damn it you're gonna love that record yep oh i know something about it I know exactly what you mean. There's a lot of albums that, that, you know, like Van Halen 3, people always, you know, poo-poo all over it. And it's like, for me, at the time, I had a job 40 minutes away, so 80 minutes back every day. And it was the only album I had, so I listened to it all there and back. And I love it to this day. And people go, oh, yeah, how do you... It's like, no choice, you know? Right. Uh, Let me get back to the book for a second. As we go through the book and... Uh, the term frenemies, which I'm not a big fan of, comes up, but they 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 love each other because they're you know they're they're road warriors together, and then they get a little bit of success, and they kind of hate each other, and then they get over it, and they come back and be like, oh yeah yeah. Um, talk to me about that, and and did you notice as you were interviewing people that there were still maybe some rivalry there, and still a little bit of jealousy, and hey, we should have been bigger, and we should have been better, and you shouldn't have cut our power in that show in ninety. 19- did you get a sense of that? There's a little bit of that in, in two instances. I mean, with Kiss and Aerosmith early on in 74, when they did two shows together, um, you know, there was a lot of tension between the road crews because Kiss had these extraordinary demands for their stage set. And also, um, you know, Aerosmith admittedly were kind of kind of intimidated by Kiss's show. They saw Kiss put on this big circus performance and then joe perry fame is famously quoted in his book you know saying we have to dress like clowns now to to get noticed because he saw the audience response to kiss versus the audience response to aerosmith um so you know although he had remained friends with kiss for a long time and even played on on gene's record steven tyler never really liked Kiss, and he's always said that. And, you know, at, at one point there was a knife fight at one of the shows between the roadies, between the road crews, and Stephen was like, I'm done. It's like, that's kind of the last straw for me. Um, so he kind of checked out, never wanted to do anything with Kiss again, and then they famously did their tour in 2003. Uh, yeah, 2003, get- the uh, World Domination Tour, and Oximus Maximus. Yeah, and and That's Smith name for it. Um, so yeah, so so they went ahead and did that, um, and that uh, that 
team up was apparently beset with technical issues and problems. And then, you know, Stephen and Joe started trash talking Kiss in 2009, six years after this tour. And then Paul Stanley, you know, bit back in a radio interview. And when I interviewed Paul um, for the book, there still seemed to be a little residual, you know, we love all the guys in Aerosmith, but there's all there's always that one guy who, you know, for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. So th- there appears to be still a little bit of residual um, uh, antagonism, if that's the right word. Well, um, yeah. It, and Aerosmith yeah. cut the stage for, for Kiss. They weren't allowed to use the ego ramps. And, and that was a major issue for, for Paul not being able to go running up that ramp. And I don't know. And also, you know, Aerosmith insisted that they go out with three original members at that time. So they had to sort of recruit Peter back into the band. So, you know, there was a, I, I don't, I think Kiss had to, um, swallow some pride maybe, or bite some bullets in order to, to do that tour. Um, and it, it brought up some resentments, I think, all around. So uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. These guys, these guys have known each other forever. Um, and they have, they had been competitors for the longest time. So, and then, you know, you, you get into the whole, and this is something that I point out in the book, there's like this whole butterfly effect, something that sort of a small thing that happens, maybe small, early on ripples into this big event. So, you know, Paul and Desmond Child um, collaborated on I Was Made for Loving You, and then Desmond wrote a lot of songs for Kiss when they took their makeup off. And um, at some point, Paul recommended that Desmond work with Bon Jovi, because Paul was asked to work with him. He said, no, you should get Desmond to work with you. And Desmond worked with Bon Jovi, and then from his work with Bon Jovi, making Bon Jovi these multi-platinum stars, um, he got work with Aerosmith. So, and he he basically helped Aerosmith, you know, have this huge renaissance and this huge resuscitation. Um, so, you know, you can kind of blame Paul for Aerosmith's later success in a way. Um, so there's all that kind of uh, intertwining of, of fates and successes. Yeah, it, it is a fascinating story. Uh, I, I sort of touched upon this before when I asked you this question, but to me at that time, if I were going to do the, you know, the four kings, I would have chosen Alice Cooper. Uh, did Alice ever speak to you in terms of musically and performance? And and why was he not, you know, included in this book? Well, it's funny, you know, there, there a lot of people have asked me, why is it? Why is stars and not so and so and 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 he's he's up there with 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 Ted Nugent. Um, someone said a couple people said Rush, but they're Canadian. They sound nothing like these bands, although they have you know they toured with all of them. Um, you know, Alice Alice was kind of a, a generation removed in a way because the, he was there earlier and they were there earlier. Um, and Kiss really kind of admittedly bit a lot of their act from Alice. I mean, you know, Peter has said that, you know, they saw, they wanted to do a band with four Alice Coopers and they did. Um, They were so blown away by seeing the billion dollar babies show at Madison square garden. Um, 
but no, Al, Alice is he's he hovers over this story a lot. Um, unfortunately, I did not get to talk to him despite you know trying and and making requests. But uh, that's the thing, you know, there there were a bunch of people who just didn't want to talk for the book, and you know, I was able to get a few other people to supplant them, but. Uh, you know, it was it, it was some of the, some of that was difficult. Some of that was difficult. Now, uh, I noticed that you spoke a lot to Tom Worm, and Tom, I, I love Tom. I've I've stayed at his house. He's a great person. Uh, Cheap Trick have over the years in interviews discounted his importance to the band. You're a fan, so let's go just mano mano, fan to fan. Do you think that Tom Worman did a great job producing those Cheap Trick records? I do. Yes. I, I, I do. Um, you know, I, I love In Color. Um, I think it, you know, Bunny told me that it sounds like cardboard. And I understand that because it, you know, it's it sounds thin compared to the first album, which is like full on, like live, you know, in the studio, raw rock and roll. But Tom, Tom is very candid with me. He says, listen, they could have made that first record over and over again with Jack Douglas or someone else, um, but they would never have sold a shit ton of records because they wouldn't have a song on the radio. And Tom, who who hadn't really produced before, he worked on a couple of Ted Nugent records. Um, he took the production reins for the second album for In Color, and he said, my, my um, loyalty is to the record label because I'm employed by the record label and I need to give you hits through them. So that's, that, that was his philosophy. I want to make you guys, you know, ready for the radio. And while the second record didn't do it, the third record almost did. Um, and then, you know, then he did dream police, which basically, you know, really exploded for them. And, you know, the, and it's funny because the, Tom Worman didn't really have a sound. I mean, the, the first record he did with them was kind of, you know, spare and, and, and lightweight. But then by the time you get to Dream Police, it's like a full on, like full spectra production. Yeah. And, but, and it's just funny because you, you, you talk to Nikki Six or any of the guys in Motley Crue and they go, oh, we don't like what Tom did. And then you look at the albums, you go, shout out the devil. And it's pretty... You know, and then you talk to D. Schneider, and he goes, "Oh, you know, stay hungry. We hate it, uh, Tom." And we're like, "Man, sold a shitload of records." <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they always they they all do that, and Cheap Trick do it too. And I'm just like, mm, "Yeah." Anyway, uh, in terms of 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 moving forward, and, and do, do you see yourself writing other books with with other sort of th this kind of other historical bent to it, where where you're going into journey with with sticks and foreigner and, or REO speed? Do, do you want to have sort of a series of books where you're going to to tell these intertwined stories? Um, probably not. Actually, I mean, okay. I think with this book, I kind of forgive the expression, kind of shot by wad. I mean, because th this, to me, this was a very organic book to write. These, at least for me, these four bands were very interconnected. And it, it, the discovery in doing the research was really fulfilling for me. I can't think of another four bands and the bands that you, you basically suggested. I, I'm not huge fans of those bands. I mean, I need to be a big fan of all the bands I'm writing about. So, um, 
Yeah, I don't know what the next thing's going to be. I mean, it might not even be music. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> uh, let me ask you this. Since you were, of course, the editor of Spin and Entertainment Weekly, you do have an understanding of the business. I mean, you have to. You can't just you can't just show up, you know. Uh, how do you see the pandemic playing out for bands that are on tour? Because, you know, the, the, the head of CAA says, we're looking at fall 2021, which of course means no summer tours, no summer sheds, no whatever festivals. Um, and of course, you're also looking at 18 months of idling. Uh, how do you see the, the industry roaring back? Can it roar back? Does Live Nation survive? Do, do... That's that's a great question. And I think, you know, all things being equal, I think these at least the artists who want to roar back will try to roar back. But it's not just the artists. It's also the venue. And, you know, venues are closing all over the place. At least the smaller venues are. So it's going to be difficult. I mean, for the, the Taylor Swifts of the world and the Rolling Stones of the world and the, the Kisses of the world, they're going to be fine, you know, if they still decide to play. Um, but for those, you know, mid-level bands and bands just starting out, I mean, you know, it's, I hope there are venues. I really do. I hope there are, the venues survive, or at least when all of this is over, that venues will start up again and that, you know, more people will take chances on starting a club or a bar or, or, you know, a, a music space. So, um, I'm, I'm the, the hopeless optimistic. I, I think it's going to, I don't know about roaring back. I think it's going to, it's going to, you know, take baby steps back. Um, but I'm, I'm looking forward to going to shows again. I mean, I'm, I'm dying. To go I'm to di shows. I know it, 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 it is as though a bit strange. Cause you mentioned the Taylor Swifts and the Rolling Stones and they're at such a, a huge level that I don't know if they're going to be able to have stadium shows in the next year. Maybe, maybe the fall's too, too early for stadium shows. So they're, they sort of don't have a place to play. Obviously, all the rookie bands that are playing bars, they've got no way to build a following. So right. you've got these B-level bands that's, that sort of exist, but they're B-level bands, so they might not financially be able to exist. It is, it is a tragedy upon a tragedy. I, I just... And, you know, if I was an investor, we know that we had SARS and Mars and bird flu, and there's another one coming. I might look at it and say, you know what? I don't want to spend a million bucks to start up this club because it might not be here six months after. Yeah. It, it, and, and the other thing that's killing it is, you know, bands who you'd think could take this opportunity for quote unquote downtime and really explore their art and write songs and rehearse. They can't even do that. I mean, they can do it maybe over the computer, but it's not the same as being in the same room as your buddies and rehearsing and coming up with stuff and jamming. So even the, the art, the creativity is, is being turned on its head as well. Yeah, there's, there's only two good things that are going to come out of this. Innovation. At some point, somebody's going to say, ah, we got to do something different and they'll, we'll, we'll have some kind of innovation. And I think some of the bands, the Elton Johns and the Kisses and all these bands that have announced reunion tours, I've spoken to, to some of the, not, not Elton John, but some of the other ones, and they're just like, you know what, we've been sitting around doing nothing and we realize that we're going to be sitting around doing nothing for, you know, 20 years if we retire. 
we're going to extend it. So we might get some of these older bands giving us a bonus three or four years, but other than that, oof, oof, you know. No, I, I, I hear you. <laughs> I, I, hope, I hope the trend changes, but we'll see. Anyway, uh, on that, uh, They Just Seem a Little Weird is the book by Doug Broad. You can go get it. Uh, it's a Hachette book. We love Hachette up in Quebec. Uh, and on that, uh, merci beaucoup. Uh, an absolute pleasure. Same here. Thank you. Sarah. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely.